Thanks, guys. I'm sure it's going to read for us now. Yes, brilliant. Thank you. Okay, we're going to read from uh, the privilege of having the Bible in our own language. Uh, we're going to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, uh, starting from verse 31, and that's on page 995 in the Blue Church Bibles. Jesus has been responding to the disciples' questions about uh, what's coming up in the future. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? He's answered uh, some of that. And then he's telling some parables concerning the nature of the kingdom of of heaven. And uh, this is the third of three parables about the sheep and the goats. So this is uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. And Jesus refers to himself uh, as the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or ill, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. May God open up his word to us. Thanks very much, Philip. Well, one of the aspects of the church that we have said we we want to be, and which we'll be looking at on the the 20th um, 
of November when we meet together as a church and consider our vision is an engaging church, a church that engages with the world around us, uh, by which we mean sharing the love of Jesus with those around through word and deed, through telling people about Jesus and through our acts of witness, our acts of kindness. I don't think any of us would suggest that the church doesn't have a responsibility to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Uh, we may have differences of opinion about um, how we do that or who should do that, but as a church, evangelism, evangelism has been very much a part of what we do. I also don't think we would disagree with the need for us as individual Christians to, to show love to, to others in our reg- regular daily lives. But engaging with the world through social action um, has been a much less predominant part of the church, which is why we're going to be looking at it over the next few weeks. And the question we're going to tackle this evening is, why should we engage with the world? What is the motivation for us to do so? Because we quite easily get into practicalities, right, what are we going to go and do? Without really having a biblical foundation. And that could quite easily lead to burnout, it could lead to guilt, it could lead to frustration. Next week we will look at how should we engage and what are we doing when we engage. Thinking about the different needs of a broken world. We'll look at the interaction between evangelism and social action. Are they separate? Do they go together? Should one have priority? Those sort of issues. And then we'll finish in a couple of weeks' time looking at who is my neighbour. Bringing many of the issues together as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we'll keep coming back to over the next couple of weeks. So the question tonight is, why should we engage with the world through social action? It might be helpful, first of all, to define what do we mean by social action. Because it covers a lot of things, doesn't it? It could mean um, uh, giving food to a food bank to feed those with an immediate practical need. It could mean being a member of the, the local parish council, providing a Christian influence in the affairs of the local community. It could mean lobbying your MP about freedom of speech. It also involves things we do as individuals as well as things we do together as a church. But for now, I'm going to assume all these aspects of social action as we uh, talk about engaging with the world. Before I get into it, let me just um, throw it out to you just to see what you're thinking. Hopefully, you've got your minds already um, engaged. What do you think, or why do you think we should? engage with the world through social action or maybe you think we shouldn't why do you think we should anybody wants to shout out um, some reasons why we we might want to engage with the world through social action shout them out nice and loud getting alongside people Okay, this is an opportunity that comes in, in doing acts of kindness in terms of sharing our faith verbally about the gospel. Yeah? Yeah? Yes, we are as a church part of the community. We're not, we're not distant from it, we're not separate from it, and we are in the world, aren't we? Yeah? Loving aliens. Loving aliens. Yeah, <laughs> do you want to, uh, uh, sorry? Or foreigners, yes, yeah. Do you want to clarify that a bit more, Hugh? Yeah. Yeah. Love those who are not 
part of God's people at this time, yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, loving those outside the church, you could say. Um, yes, yeah, there's a lot we do take from a community, don't we? But we, you know, here, like Jesus came into the world, he came to serve, not to, to be served. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, I think, um, you know, if you go back in time, a lot of people wouldn't even know why you're asking this question. There is a great social legacy that um, there is from those in the past who have done great acts. Well, let's, um, let's uh, get into to what the Bible says. There's three reasons I want to mention this evening, three key, I think, motivating factors for us to get involved with social action. Um, first of those, I don't think anybody mentioned, but that is to actually just to display the character of God, to display the mercy of God. When we read the Bible, what we find is a God who hates oppression, he hates injustice, he hates poverty. He upholds the cause of those who suffer. A good passage which describes as well, you have to turn with me to, to Psalm 146, verse 7. Page 632 of the Church Bibles. Psalm 146. Actually, let me read from verse 6. The Lord is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Those verses start with the fact that he's a God of the world. And although he chooses a people for himself, he still cares for all of those that he's created. And so not only does he expect justice among his own people, he expects uh, it in other nations as well. So if you read the book of Amos, um, before the prophet rebukes Judah and Israel for, for their treatment of the poor, for their injustice, he pronounces judgment on all the surrounding nations. God hates injustice, he hates oppression wherever it takes place. He hates the fact that there are countries in the world today where not only Christians are being persecuted, but there is injustice for, for all citizens. And that is why we as humans have been created in the image of God with that same inbuilt sense of justice. Trouble is, because we are sinful, a lot of our sense of injustice is something that affects me. So when a child cries out, that's not fair. They're not saying, I think... Um, that actually we need a better system of justice for all. They're saying, that's not fair for me. And when adults cry out often, that's not fair, they still mean the same, don't they? It's incredible how people can get worked up about um, planning applications. It's a great source of, uh, of people feeling injustice. Um, there was a big hoo-ha a couple of years ago when a planning application was put in for a waste recycling plant here in the, on the edge of Long Crendon. However, 
when the HS2 planning application went in, there was not much noise at all. I wonder if it had been going very close to this village, uh, whether it would be very different. Although God is interested in every aspect of our lives, I'm not sure comfortable, well-off people in Long Crendon whose lives might be a little less comfortable is what we're talking about here. God sees those who are suffering, whether it's through a lack of food, a lack of shelter, health, freedom. And what does he do? Does he say, well, they've only got themselves to blame, you know, they, they messed the world up, they can sort it out. No, he has compassion, he has mercy. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think uh, the most telling line is this. A Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Pity, compassion, mercy. That is the character of God. That is the character of God we're displaying whenever we show those same acts of mercy. When God gave the, the law to Israel, he was teaching them the sort of community that he expected them to be. And so there were laws of justice and mercy. In Exodus 23, it says this, um, Do not spread false reports. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Do not accept a bribe. Do not oppress a foreigner. And then the laws of mercy. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unploughed and unused, then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. This is the character of the God we worship. And when we act in this way, we display his character of mercy. And we provide for the needs of others, when people witness acts of kindness being done, people see God. That's why we, when we remember those who died to protect our freedom as we did this morning, something is stirred within us. It lifts us to a different spiritual sphere. We see God in action. God doesn't normally physically give food to the hungry or set prisoners free or, or sustain orphans and widows. He can do that. He provided manna to the people of Israel, didn't he, in the desert? He fed 5,000 people in Galilee. But the way in which he typically works is to move people to do that. Often Christians, because they have experienced themselves, uh, God's grace in their lives. But also those who are not Christians. God can move them with compassion as well. And so to see an act of kindness, whether it's done by a Christian or not, is to see the mercy of God. And the difference between Christians doing it and non-Christians doing it is that we should actually have a greater motivation. But we have experienced that mercy ourselves in the greatest way through the forgiveness of sins. And so we should want people to see the mercy of God. So the first reason we get involved, I think, is to display the mercy of God. The second one is to follow the example of Christ incarnate. We're coming up to Christmas. In case you're not aware yet, you haven't got uh, long to buy your Christmas presents and send your cards. It's uh, 41 days, is it, to Christmas? Um, one of the most mind-blowing things about Christmas 
is how the God of the universe should give up the glory of heaven and humble himself to come into this world and mix with his created beings. Christ incarnate is a shorthand way of saying Christ in the flesh, Christ coming into the world of humans. And so if you hear that buzzword, um, incarnational ministry, it's about basically going into the world as Christ went into the world. And becoming human, Christ willingly became weak and vulnerable. He became subject to human experiences of pain, of temptation, of alienation. But he had to do that in order to fulfill his ministry, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, to demonstrate its arrival by healing the sick, by feeding the hungry, by befriending the marginalized, by raising the dead. And then in his greatest act of service, He allowed himself to be unjustly arrested, condemned, and crucified for our sakes. 2 Corinthians 8 sums it up. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now obviously his mission was in many ways unique. None of us could um, bear the sins of others. So what did he mean then when he said to his father, as the father has sent me, I am sending you? Well, whether it was to proclaim the gospel or to meet people's physical needs or both, if we're to do the same as Christ, if we're to be sent, we need to enter the world of others. That means entering their world, that means understanding their pain, their alienation. It's showing them where the gospel can meet their needs, help them where they are. It also means giving up the, uh, the comfort, the security of uh, our families and homes, which is what Philip and Judy are going to be doing next week. It also means um, giving up the security of our cultural background to serve those who maybe even in the same town or village um, have a different outlook from our own, maybe very different needs from our own. Last week we heard about the work of Christian Prison Resources, didn't we? Uh, David Fortune goes into to nine prisons every week, the same nine prisons, to meet prisoners. And what he's doing, he, he's meeting their spiritual needs, he's teaching them about Jesus Christ. But the point is, he's going to where they are. If he waited for prisoners to come to him, he wouldn't really have much of a ministry, would he? I don't think they'd let him out. One of the things we we came up with in our elders' retreat as being a potential stumbling block to growth is the the narrow horizons of the church, the fact that we are very white middle class. Jesus came into the world and mixed with everybody, those who respectable society had shunned. And the question is, are we prepared to do that? Because it will be messy, there will be complicated issues, but isn't that what Jesus expects us to do? And if it's fear or complacency that's stopping us, then we need to pray that Jesus would remove that. Maybe it's a lack of compassion, though. Jesus is all compassion. That is his nature. When he saw those who were harassed, helpless, sick, bereaved, his heart went out to them. And we have, as Christians, some of that compassion in varying degrees and um, The degree of it often depends on our understanding 
of his grace. Which brings us on to our last point, which is to demonstrate our understanding of grace. In this series, we are focusing a lot on uh, what we can do together as a church, but um, of course, most of our social action will be done as individuals. In our different situations, as we see needs around us. And there's a lot of care and compassion that people in the church show. It's wonderful to see it in action. But possibly also one of the biggest dangers to our acts of compassion can be actually being part of the church, being wrapped up in doing all our stuff that we then fail to show kindness to those outside the church. In his book, Issues Facing Christians Today, John Stott tells the story of a homeless woman who turned to help for a, from a vicar who promised to, to pray for her. Uh, this is what she later wrote um, uh, as a poem and gave it to somebody who worked for the organisation Shelter. She wrote this. She said, I was hungry and you formed a humanities group to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to your chapel and prayed for my release. I was naked, and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry and lonely and cold. Now, reading those words um, from Matthew 25 um, earlier on, very much those words we just heard, puts that in perspective, doesn't it? Let's just turn to Matthew 25 now. Start very uh, positively to encourage those who are already helping people in need to see that what they are doing, they are actually doing for Jesus himself. And even if they don't realise that, have a look at verse 37 of chapter 25. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And the great encouragement is that they are reassured that they are part of Jesus' kingdom. And so the king will say to those in his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It's not their acts of kindness that have gained their entry into the kingdom. It's a demonstration they've understood the grace of Jesus. Well, the passage continues with quite a stark warning to those who are not doing these acts of mercy. Verse 41, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. 
Now it appears that he's trying to motivate us out of a sense of fear, but what he's really saying is, you may call yourself a Christian, but have you really understood the gospel of grace? If you have, then it will be evident in the way you respond to those in need. It'd be easy for me to say here, um, Sally, and say to you, look, think of all those people, the starving millions, um, and think of all that you have compared to what they, the little that they have. And in many ways, that's what programs like Comic Relief they do, don't they? They make us feel guilty, and we give out a sense of guilt, and then we feel less guilty. But the Bible tells us not to to give out of a sense of guilt, but in gratitude for the gift of Christ that we've received. If we've grasped the gospel of grace, then we won't be motivated to engage with the world and do acts of kindness out of fear. We'll be motivated by love. Because we will know that we received God's mercy even though we didn't deserve it. And so we will look at those who who are ungrateful, who are difficult, who are enemies of God. And we will have the same heart of love for them as God had for us. Because we know, as we read earlier around the Lord's table, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we will look at those with different social problems from our own. We'll look at the prostitute, the drug addict, the prisoners, the single mums, the the homeless, the refugees. And we'll have a heart of love for them, because in them we see ourselves. Before we became Christians, maybe we led a respectable middle-class life but we were, still middle, we were still rebels against God. The physical symptoms may have been different, but the spiritual state was exactly the same, living a life without God. A basic understanding of grace is enough to save us, isn't it? But the deeper our understanding, the more it will produce in us A degree of spontaneous generosity, of acts of kindness that go beyond uh, what is somehow expected of us. The story of the the Good Samaritan, which we'll come on to in a couple of weeks, um, we see a stranger there on whom there was absolutely no expectation to do anything for that, that guy lying beaten up in the road. He could quite easily have said, poor guy, but I'm sure some other of his fellow countrymen will come along And they'll take care of him. Dangerous place here to stop. Nobody would expect me to do that. They're enemies of our country. There's a beauty of being motivated by grace and not fear or guilt. We don't do what is expected of us. And we do it with great joy. It's an overflow of the love of God from our hearts. We simply can't help it. And where this comes out very powerful is when is Paul urges the Corinthians to, to give. He gives the example of the, the Macedonians who he says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. The deeper we experience the free grace of God, the more generous we will become with our time, with our money, with our acts of kindness. And the less we'll look for recognition and appreciation because we're doing it for the Lord. So as I sum up, why should we engage with the world through social action, either as individuals or as a church, to display the mercy of God, 
to follow the example of Christ incarnate and to demonstrate that we've understood grace. I hope we have all been encouraged this evening. I hope we've been challenged as well. Challenged to go deeper in our grasp of grace so that the whole of our lives will be characterized by expressions of grace so that others will see God. Isn't that what we want? Let's have a moment of quiet to allow God to reveal to us what is in our hearts and for us to call on him to show us his grace. Moment of quiet. We thank you and praise you that you are a merciful God. That you had mercy on us while we were ungodly, while we were still sinners. We thank you that your son came into this world, came into the world of sinners. He came and met the needs of those who acknowledge their need. He met with all kinds of people. Father, we thank you for the grace that has changed our lives. And we thank you for the, the opportunity to demonstrate that through the acts of kindness we show towards others. And we thank you for the many acts of kindness we see from people in this church. We thank you for the warmth there is, the love there is. We thank you that in this church we can see you. And Lord, we do pray that we would go deeper in that knowledge of you, deeper in that understanding of your grace, that there will be many more outside this church who see us and see you. Lord, that is what we long for. And so fill us with your love, fill us with your grace, that it overflows from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.